And may all glory and honor go unto him, for he alone is worthy. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. A little question to begin. What is your first response when you are called out, when you are accused, uh, when you know you're going to face punishment for an offense? Now, let's use an example, a speeding ticket. You're driving down the street, the police pull, policeman pulls out of the, uh, or steps out of the uh, laneway he's been hiding in, and he pulls you over. You uh, undo your window. What's your first response? Tears. Tears, perhaps some secret cursing, those kind of things, yes. But I think the first response after we get through the emotion, and maybe it even happens before we actually stop, it's kind of like, who, who me? Like, I, I was speeding? I know that's my response. Like, I, I was speeding? Then, when you realize that, yes, you were speeding, the second response, at least for me, is... Okay, I might have been speeding, but did you not see all the people that passed me doing twice my speed before I passed your radar gun? Yes, but you're still guilty of speeding. And then we, we go to our final resort, and that is name dropping or privilege dropping or making an excuse. And I'm assuming my friend is behind me. But I'm Justin Bieber. But it's a holiday. The school isn't even in. I remember I used to always get in trouble growing up at my home church in Toronto. Uh, and uh, I used to always say, but my dad's an elder. Never worked. Never worked. There was no privileged status. I was guilty. You know, we're continuing in our, our series in the book of Romans. And, and last week, Ben began looking at chapter 2. And for the next two weeks, we're going to continue looking on uh, at what Paul has to say in chapter 2. And if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we came to the end of chapter 1. And Paul gave this long list of sins. He is describing what we would first think is just an outright sinful Rebel, someone who has strayed so far from God, someone who has gone down that downward spiral to the depths, to the bottom of the pit, far away from God and in holy living as one could possibly get. And you know, there were people, and you get the sense as you get into chapter two that Paul was ready for this, but there was people who were hearing what Paul said and, and they considered themselves to be different than the people Paul was talking about in chapter one. They considered themselves to be heaven-bound. Uh, they were worthy for a right stand with, uh, to have a right standing with God uh, just on the basis of their good works, on the basis of their moral behavior, maybe because of their privileged status. And in Paul's day, many of those people would have been self-righteous Jews. And you remember last week, Ben described the two pathways of righteousness righteousness that are hypothetically open for us. One, there's the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And then there's this other righteousness, self-righteousness, the life of the moral person, one who feels that they possibly can attain a right standing with God on the basis of what they do in and of themselves. So you got these two kinds of righteousness. And the people that Paul was writing to and who would have been hearing this letter, many of them would have been self-righteous Jews. 
And they would have heard Paul's description in chapter 1. And everything they heard would have reminded them of what they thought of the Gentiles. And they would have been saying, preach it, brother. Amen. Give it to them. Tell them what they're really like. You know, maybe today as people hear what Paul says at the end of chapter 1 and reads through that long list, maybe someone who's an upright citizen would think that Paul's describing those that we read about in the newspaper or, or commit those horrible crimes on the news. Maybe as we hear his words, those of us on the inside of the church think that's must be describing the people outside the walls of the church. Those people that really need to clean themselves up before they could ever have a chance with God. But Paul does something when we get to chapter 2. Something that his ameners were totally unexpecting. Paul turns the tables. Paul turns the tables and he says to them, you are guilty of the same things that those sinful rebels are guilty of in chapter 1. Those of you who are self-righteous, those of you who think you are good and moral, you are just as guilty of sin as are those who are described in chapter 1. You know, as I listen to that conversation that Paul begins in chapter 2 with, with this audience that he senses is going to have this response reminds me of another conversation it's almost like the scenario has taken place before and ben mentioned the individual last week it's king david remember king david when his army was off at war decided that he would just stay in the palace and he saw that beautiful girl bathing decided he would introduce himself Ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba. Then he decided, well, what should any good king do? He should try to hide his sin. And so he invites Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the war. Gets him all drunk, hoping that uh, Uriah would sleep with Bathsheba, but he refuses to. His, his fellow fighters are, are out on the, on the front lines. I'm not going to enjoy privileges that they can't. And Uriah refused. And, and so David, he's got to cover up his sins somehow. So what's David do? He, he sends Uriah back to the front lines with the instructions for the other people to, to make sure that Uriah finds himself in a, a real uh, horrible spot. And Uriah ends up getting killed. And in David's mind, he'd succeeded. He's the king. He shouldn't really have to worry about it anyways. But No one was going to find out. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is available. She's pregnant with my child. I'm going to marry her. And so David marries Bathsheba, expecting a child. Then when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan visits David. And Nathan tells David a story. Tells David about a rich man and a poor man. Rich man had all sorts of cattle, all sorts of sheep, all sorts of money. The poor man had one little lamb. And it wasn't really something that I think they were going to eat. It was their pet. Uh, it says in second, or Nathan tells David that, that uh, the, the, the poor man used to hold the lamb in his arms and, and treat it like a daughter. And so as the story goes, this rich man has a visitor. And this visitor comes uh, and... The rich man realizes he's going to have to prepare a meal. But instead of taking something from his vast fortune, 
he goes and he takes the one little lamb that the poor man has and he slaughters it and prepares it as a meal for his visitor. And as Nathan's telling David this story, David is seething with anger. He cannot believe that this rich man would do this to the poor man. And finally, he can't take it any longer. And David says out loud, as sure as the Lord lives, the one who has done that must die. And Nathan, I'm sure shaking a little bit in his boots, points his finger at David and says, David, you are the one. And Nathan's revelation is striking. His words pierce to the very core of David's heart. The judge who's just pronounced guilt ends up being the guilty one. And in Romans chapter 2, we've got this same courtroom strategy going on. David is pointing his finger at those who are self-righteous, those who, are, who think that they're good enough and that they're moral enough that God will be okay with them. And he's pointing his finger at them and he's saying, you are just as guilty. You stand just as condemned as the outright sinful rebel I described in chapter one. But David's, sorry, Paul has a problem. And this is Paul's problem. Critical to the argument that he's trying to get across in the first few chapters of Romans is this. Everyone is guilty of sin before a holy God. Everyone. And here's the problem. Some of you have experienced, as you've shared the good news, the good person, the self-righteous person, the moralist, aren't always easy to convince that in and of themselves, no, they aren't good enough. Hard to convince someone who doesn't understand or doesn't see that they have a problem or a need that they do have a problem, that they do have a need. And so as we come into chapter two, David, David, I'm going to say David all morning. Paul confronts the ameners head on realizes he's got a job to do to convince them that they too are guilty of sin. And so what he does in chapter two is he explains the basis by which God judges humanity. He gives three principles by which God will judge humanity. And in all three scenarios, humanity stands condemned before God. Those who put their faith in Christ, who realize that they stand condemned before a holy God, have already received their pardon. But those who stand condemned before God and appeal to their own moral, their own good behavior, to their deeds, will be condemned. And so what are those three principles? Well, before I get to them, let me give, and I think it's important that we do this, Let me define three terms because we keep, even in our songs this morning, we've been throwing out words that sometimes we just expect everybody to understand. So if for some of you might be going, okay, I already know this, but 
but bear with me, just so we're all on the same page. The first thing we need to understand is the holiness of God. When we say that God is holy, it is such a huge topic. It can really blow your mind when you, when you think about the holiness of God and what it really means. So let me share with you, and I've shared it with you probably several times before, J.I. Packer's definition of the holiness of God. And what Packer says is that when you hear the term the holiness of God, it refers to three things. It refers to everything about God, those attributes and characteristics of God that sets him apart from us, making him different. And so you can think of characteristics and attributes of God that make him different than us, set apart from us. And that's what the word holy means, set apart. Secondly, The holiness of God refers to anything, characteristics, attributes of God that set him above us, making him an object of worship, an object of awe. So we can think of those characteristics and attributes of God. We've sung about his love, his grace, his mercy, those things that set him above us. So we worship him. That's why some of you stood up this morning. You stood up, you're worshiping. He's he's above us. But the third thing, that the holiness of God refers to are those attributes and characteristics of God that set him against us. His hatred of sin. His expectation for holy living. Setting him against us. As it were, making him an object to be afraid of. And so when we consider the holiness of God in its fullness, there's something about God that draws us towards him, but there's something about God that makes us stand back. So Isaiah 6, when Isaiah describes seeing God seated on the throne, it's a majestic start to the description. And then Isaiah realizes, I'm a sinner. I'm ruined. My people are ruined. Everything about me uh, is sinful. And so we got the holiness of God. And what causes us to be, uh, him to be set against us is sin. And that's the second term. And we talk about sin all the time. Sin simply means to fall short or to miss the mark. And so if we were trying to jump between two tall buildings, and you can jump further than me, but we both fall short of the other ledge, We both will crash to our death. And that's the idea of sin, that there's a standard and we fall short of that standard. Or we miss the mark. And so you think in terms of archery. uh, And to hit the mark is to get the bullseye. But our arrows are always shooting away from the bullseye. And the real bad thing about sin, if you can say bad thing about sin, is is that God doesn't grade on a scale. He's not looking at us and going, "Eh, sorry, I'm not going to point and say that. A 1 out of 10. I'm a 10 out of 10. 10 being bad. He's not grading us on a scale. And and there's no median. I was really interested. Lauren brought her uh, um, report card home and and to see the median. What what the average grade was in all the class. God doesn't grade on a median. We sin by action. We sin by thought. We sin by word. It's all exceedingly sinful. And then the third thing is judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27 lays it out pretty simply. We're all destined to die and then face judgment. Judgment is a matter of fact according to scripture. 
But we live in a day and age, even the church, within the church, we live in a day and age where there is so much apathy and so much doubt concerning the judgment of God. We rub shoulders with people that if we were to ask them what they think about the judgment of God, do you believe that there's a day of judgment coming? The majority of people wouldn't even have an answer. But those who do answer, the majority of them would probably say, well, a good God, a loving God wouldn't judge people. Some will say, yeah, but I'm okay. Compared to the other people around me, I'm okay. I'm not worried. The real brave ones will say, well, I'm willing to take my chances. Yet the Bible says a day of judgment is coming. And and if you look in Romans chapter 2, and we're going to see two in two different ways how Paul contains chapter 2 as a unit. But in in Romans chapter 2, in verse 1, we have the self-righteous sitting in judgment against the the rebellious sinner. But in verses 2 through 16, we see God sitting on judgment, sitting in judgment on all of humanity. So judgment is a given. There is a day of judgment coming. So now let's go back to Paul's argument here. How do you convince a self-righteous person that they are guilty of sin, that they will stand condemned? Well, Paul gives us these three principles. And and, and Ben covered the first 11 verses last week, and and he's not here this morning, but I actually emailed him yesterday because I don't want anyone to think that I'm kind of covering some of the ground he covered last week because I think he missed something. Ben did something very important last week. He made it very clear to us that there's two kinds of righteousness. One that works, one that doesn't. Faith in Christ and self-righteousness. Now we're looking at some of the same verses from a different angle. And now that you understand that, hey, maybe I am self-righteous, that I've been counting on what I can do to earn a right standing with God, understanding that, now you can understand Paul's argument as he tries to convince you that that's not enough that you will fall short, that you won't be happy when you stand before God in judgment. Okay, so in verse 1 to 5 of chapter 2, you see the first principle. And that first principle is this. God judges on the basis of truth. In other words, God's going to judge humanity on the basis of reality, on how we lived our life. No one's going to be able to pull the wool over God's eyes. God's not going to judge us uh, based on our pious statements or, or our best intentions. God is going to judge us on the basis of how we lived our life. Even those things we do when nobody's looking. So how's that going to work for the self-righteous person? What's that kind of judgment going to reveal? In the first five verses, Paul, Paul mentions that, well, the first thing it's going to reveal is hypocrisy. Because those who stand in judgment are guilty of doing the very same things that they're judging somebody else for. And Paul says that those very words of judgment are going to be the standard by which God will judge the self-righteous person. And they will stand condemned by their very own words. Then a little bit further down, Paul says that they're diluted by their pride. They believe that they're not going to be judged by God. They're not going to be punished by the way they live because they're special. 
They're different. And why do they think that? They think that because they've misused the mercy of God. They've misunderstood the mercy of God. They're sitting back and going, well, God's not done anything yet. God hasn't punished me, so how I'm living must be okay. And as Ben said last week, they're missing the point. God's kindness, God's patience is to lead us to repentance. It's not to be a green light for us to continue living the kind of life that we're living. I think I have it here. I found this little illustration I thought was kind of cute that would fit this principle. It says, an atheist farmer often taunted and made fun of people who believed in God. He wrote the following letter to the editor of a local newspaper. I plowed on Sunday, planted on Sunday, cultivated on Sunday, and hauled in my crops on Sunday. But I never went to church on Sunday, yet I harvested more bushels per acre than anyone else, even those who are God-fearing and never miss a service. The editor printed the man's letter and then added this remark. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. I thought that was uh, misusing the mercy of God. So principle number one, God judges according to truth or reality. The second principle is in verses 6 to 11. God judges on the basis of works. On the basis of our works. And this is really bad news for the self-righteous person. Because what they're going to find out is that God expects perfect tens. So if there is a scale, he expects a perfect 10. 100% conformity. So that's bad news for the self-righteous person. And it's important for us to understand (coughs) that uh, Paul's not talking about salvation here. Paul is not explaining how we are to be saved. That's going to come shortly. What Paul's doing here is explaining why we're lost. He's going to explain that no one can be saved by works. It's through faith. But here he's explaining why we're lost. And what Paul is saying is that those who choose to live apart from faith in Christ as the basis of a right standing with God are going to find themselves standing before a holy God condemned by their very own works. And why are works so important? Why works? Because our works reveal what's going on inside our heart. It's either going to reveal faith in Christ that leads to eternal life, or it's going to reveal disobedience, unbelief, rebellion, which leads to eternal judgment. So we are judged by our works. We are saved by faith. And look at verse 11. It is a transitional verse. Short. Paul says this judgment, this judgment by works, is the same for everyone. God is not going to show any favoritism. He's not going to show any partiality. When it comes to judgment, everyone is on equal footing. And that's bad news for the self-righteous person. But it's at this point, Paul 
senses a second response. Because there are those self-righteous Jews who are going to be hearing what Paul is saying. In verse 11, Paul says, For God does not show favoritism. And they're going, wait a second, Paul. We're not the same as the Gentiles. We're different. We're special. We're God's chosen people. How can you say that God is going to treat us all the same when we're not the same? We've been banking on God's favoritism. Paul, we possess the law, the law of Moses, where where God has has given us his his moral standards for us and on how we're to live as his people. We possess the law. We deserve special treatment. And what Paul's going to say as we look at this final principle in verses 12 to 16 is this. He's going to say, yes, those of you who are possessors of the law, you will be given special treatment. But you're not going to like it. And so it leads us to the third principle. And the third principle is this. God's judgment is according to light. God is going to judge us on the basis of what we do with what we know. God's judgment is not based on who we are, our nationality, our gender, our social status. God is going to judge us based on what we do with the revelation that he has given to us. So our righteousness is not determined simply by being possessors of the law or hearers of the word. Rather, our righteousness is based on our obedience to it. Likewise, likewise, one's condemnation is not on the basis of not having the law. Condemnation comes through disobedience to what you have been revealed by God or what has been revealed to you. By God. So what Paul is saying is, Mr. Jew, just because you possess the law of Moses doesn't mean that you are deserving of blessing any more than a Gentile who doesn't possess the law is automatically deserving of God's wrath. Verses 12 through 16 are, is a complex It's one sentence in the Greek. Very, very complex. But if you break it down into chunks, I think we can get the understanding of Paul's argument. So so look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 2. It says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. It's really a summary statement. What Paul is simply saying is everyone's guilty of sin. Those of you who are under the law, who have the law, you'll be judged under the law and you'll stand condemned before a holy God. Those of you who don't have the law, who live apart from the law, you'll be judged apart from the law and you will stand condemned for your sin before a holy God. So then we move into verse 13, where Paul's specifically talking to his Jewish readers. And he says, For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Once again, 
for those who are under the law, who have been given the law, if their path to righteousness, their path to having a right standing with God is on the basis of their own good works, their own moral behavior, keeping the law, hypothetically, that's an okay path. But understand this, God expects 100% perfection and one slip up and you're done. So you can probably figure out it's, it's not really a great path to choose. And then in verses 14 and 15, Paul addresses everyone else other than the Jewish audience. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, so historically the Gentiles were not given the law that was given to the Jews, do by nature things required by the law. And so by nature, the Gentiles at times actually do things that are written in God's law. There's something about, there's something within man's heart that compels us to obey the moral requirements that God has set in the law. It says they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. And so by nature, the Gentiles at times will, will fulfill things that are actually in the law, becoming a law to themselves, even though they may not even have heard of the law. I know it's a little confusing. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. And this is where I think you're going to start to understand what Paul's saying, maybe a bit better. What Paul is saying is that God has written on the heart of every human being that has ever lived. He has given a revelation of some of his moral standards. That's why you cannot find a people group anywhere on this, on earth that does not have a sense of right and wrong. That there are just certain things that they know aren't right, whether it's murdering, whether it's stealing, whether it's adultery. They have an idea of right and wrong. And how do we know that this is true? And Paul says in verse 15, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. How do we know that this is true? How do we know that God has given a sense of right and wrong to every human being? Because every human being has a conscience, which will tell us when we're doing right, will tell us when we're doing wrong, will defend us, but at the same time, it will accuse us. And so what is Paul trying to get at as he's referring to the Gentiles? What he's saying is this. Every human being has a standard, lives by a standard, lives by a performance standard. Every human being has a law. And God is going to hold every human being accountable for 100% conformity to that law. So the Jew who's trying to be, uh, attain righteousness through obeying the law has to keep it 100%. And the Gentile who wants to attain righteousness has to live in 100% conformity to what they know to be the moral requirements of the law. And hopefully you can kind of get the idea that both of them are going to fail. One slip up 
is all it takes. And in verse 16, Paul gives that sober warning. There is a day of judgment coming. When even our most deepest secrets will be revealed. Because if our actions and our words haven't condemned us, wait till our secrets get out in the open. There will be no room for excuses. There will be no best intentions. We'll all be treated fairly. We will all be given what we deserve. And whether you're a self-righteous Jew, whether you're a moral Gentile, whether you are a rebellious sinner, we're all in the same lot. We all stand before a holy God, condemned, guilty because of our sin. And that's the point that Paul wants us to get at. And you might be going, man, for three weeks we've been hearing all this depressing talk. Well, good. Paul wants us to understand that we are desperately over our heads in sin. And I don't know if that picture is up there. Can you put the picture, Sally, of the boat? On Friday, we had some major flooding happening in the church. And uh, Francis and myself and Jordan and Judy, we were downstairs. And, and if you notice our back parking lot, <clears throat> it's all ice. As you go into the back door that kind of slopes downward, all the snow will melt towards the, the uh, I guess, the walkway into the door. And what happened was there was so much water, everything was melting. I had nowhere to go but into the back door. And there's about this much of a lip. And the water was that high and higher, and it was coming in the back door and right into the, the Sunday school room. And uh, Jordan and Francis were both down there paling out water. And, I, and Jordan's telling me this, like, it's kind of hopeless trying to pail this water because everything is flowing back in there. And I couldn't help but I said to Jordan, there's a sermon illustration. Because that's what it's like trying to deal with our problem of sin all on our own. It is hopeless. Because we are way over our heads. And that's why Paul has said in chapter 1, a righteousness of God has been revealed. God is revealing his saving activity by saving those who put their faith in Christ. Because we can't do it on our own. You know, David, confronted by Nathan, leads him to one of the most beautiful psalms, Psalm 51. A psalm of repentance. Where David realizes he's a sinner, guilty before God, and he casts himself at God's mercy. And he asks God to clean him, to, to wash him, to, to remove his sins. And as you read those first verses of Psalm 51, you'd almost get the impression that, that God sweeps his sin by request under the carpet. But there's judgment. Sin must be judged. And don't for a minute think that God did not judge sin. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are over our heads in sin. 
But Hebrews 9, verse 27, that says judgment is coming. Read Hebrews 9, verse 28. It says that Jesus came as our sacrifice, as our substitute. He's taken our penalty. He's taken the judgment for sin upon himself so that those of us who are willing to put our faith in him and what he has done, though by every rights we should be condemned because of our sin, God will look at us and say, forgiven. You're pardoned because you're covered by the blood of my son.